Um, so just to refresh your memory, in case it's helpful, this is um, the third week in our, in our sermon series on all people. And the first two weeks, we took a little time to look at the very beginning of the story and the very end of the story. So as we thought about the mission of God, the story of God, the goal has been to really look at that with this special lens to see God's heart for all people. And what we've seen in the first two weeks is that this theme is not something that's kind of on the side or the peripheral. This is a theme that's central to the mission of God. And I think sometimes in Christian churches, you know, there's this idea that um, God's heart for all people and, and reaching across cultural lines, reaching to the nations, reaching to all peoples of the world, that maybe that's something for people on the side, you know, a few people in the church, you know, maybe people who have sort of an extra spiritual call. <laughs> but that's just not what the scriptures teach. From the very beginning, when God called Abraham, remember, as he gathered that people together, the whole heart was, the purpose of it was that this people would be a blessing to the whole world, to all the peoples of the world. And then last week, Anthony, if you were with us here at Brookside, Anthony took us through that vision in Revelation, the end of the story, where we saw this picture of the, the final consummation, the final day of God's kingdom when Jesus would come again. And what was front and center? All peoples, every tongue, tribe, nation gathered together in worship before God. And I love that phrase, they were worshiping with one voice. Isn't that interesting? There's this unity that was on display in the book of Revelation, that picture. And yet, there were distinctives enough in that vision that John could say it was people from every tribe and tongue and nation. I think that, that picture of so much diversity and yet a unified voice um, is something that's just even hard for us to imagine. You know, as we look at the headlines in the newspaper, even as we look at our own city, to think about that sort of unity amongst diversity is something that only God can be about, it's something only he can do, and that's central to his heart. So today, as we turn our attention, we're going to pick up in Matthew, and we'll be starting in now with the middle of the story, the very center part where Jesus comes on the scene. And as we do, you're going to see that Matthew adds a couple of new dimensions to this theme of God's heart for all people. And I just want to name those from the start so you can keep them in your mind as we go forward. One is that Matthew shows us that God is not only a God for all people, God is also a God from all people. So we're going to look at the genealogy, the, the roots and the history of Jesus' family today. And Matthew makes it really clear. He's God's not just for, he is for all people, but he's also from all people. Another dimension that I think Matthew adds in, and specifically beginning in chapter one, is that God wants to be a king for all people. When we talk about God's heart for all people, that can be a little bit vague, you know. Is God a helper for all people? Is God a cheerleader for all people? A genie? A cop? No, Matthew says God's a king for all people. That's what he is. So as we enter um, into our message time today, can I invite you to, to pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been a God from the very beginning of time who has had a purpose of revealing yourself to your people and progressively continuing to, to open um, to, to reveal more and more of who you are and what you're about. And as we've watched that story progress through each step of the way, we continue to see this desire that is heavy on your heart, this theme that is central to what you're doing, 
this love for all the peoples of the world. And Father, as I think about the congregation that's gathered here this morning, I'm, I'm just mindful that in many ways we really reflect that, you know, across generations. There's young folks, old folks here in this building today. Um, as we think about even um, the different backgrounds we come from, the, even the different styles, the different moods, the circumstances that are in our lives as we walked in the door today. Um, it's also true as we think about this congregation gathered here that there are ways that we do not reflect um, all the peoples of the world. And, um, and some of that has to do with logistics and geography and oceans that are separating us. Um, but other, other, there are other factors as well. Um, and some of it has to do with um, ways that we've not been intentional to really know your heart on this. Um, we sometimes let fear or even just differences keep us from proceeding with the next step forward in becoming the people of God that you've called us to be. I, I just want to lift up every one of those things, anything that would be, um, that would inhibit us from embodying this call that you have on us. And we together, we ask for your help that you would come and be with us. Come and make us into the people that you've called us to be. Come and invite us to join with you on this mission that you've started. Um, we ask for your help as we look um, specifically today in Matthew chapter 1. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a little tradition that happens around this time of you, uh, this time of year, this time of you maybe too, and you'll see why I said that in just a minute. It, it's the Christmas card beauty contest which is sort of about the time of you, right? As you snap your photos and you put them front and center on your Christmas card and you drop them in the mail. Um, I'm kind of poking fun, uh, but don't get me wrong. I love Christmas cards. I send one out every year. And even as a single person, I've got a photo front and center. The first year, I actually went big and bold. I just was like, I'm doing a headshot, one photo. <laughs> it's kind of fun. But I don't know. Okay, I was going to look and see if we'd started. I, I asked a colleague of mine to help maybe um, provide some inspiration for any of you who, like me, enjoy, um, enjoy this process of putting together a Christmas card. And do we have those photos? I think they're, okay, yeah. So just a couple of um, inspirational ideas. Um, you might want to take some notes. Um, and I, as I was looking through them this week, I was aware that pets really kind of play a primary role. I wonder, is there a next slide even? Um, yeah, you see the puppy dogs. There was one that I saw where the kitty cat was like a shadow of the person um, in the corner. So yeah, I thought it might be just kind of nice to, like there's a couple aren't quite, a couple are not quite G-rated. You need to be a little careful when you walk through this exercise. <laughs> but I mean, you get the point. This is humorous because nobody actually does this, right? I mean, maybe you have that friend. Maybe you do. <laughs> but for the most part, we're trying to kind of put our best self forward or our best pet as it might be, right? Um, we kind of have this tendency to want to um, just skip over anything that's not quite as pretty, put, put sort of the best part of our families out there for everyone to see. And, um, you know, life, though, has a way, I think, of keeping us honest. Uh, and my family had a humorous moment several years back when we were gathered together for Christmas, and one of my uncles had been doing a lot of work on our genealogy, on our ancestry, and um, it come to find out 
um, we learned that there's um, an ancestor of ours, generations back, a man named John Howland, who uh, came over on the Mayflower. And so this was like a real discovery. No one in my family knew this. And my uncle, for Christmas that year, he had developed this family tree, this elaborate chart that traced every single name clear back to John Howland. And also in my uncle's research, he turned up a little children's book that actually had the name of my ancestor in print. And so it was this little book, Priscilla Alden, and as part of the Christmas gift, he gave to each family also a copy of this children's book. So here we are gathered, you know, we've had the dinner, the games, and we're gathered kind of just reflecting on this, this noble heritage, you know, and we decided we'd read through this children's book together. So we turned the page one by one, and of course, we didn't really care about the plot of this kid's book. I mean, we're just looking for our dude, right? You know, where's our family guy? And uh, we turn the page, and we get to this photo, and yes, that is my ancestor, John Howland, drowning beside the Mayflower. Um, it's true that I mean, it's not even just something that was made up for, for this children's book. It's true that he actually fell overboard on the Mayflower <laughs> and was kind of like, it was this big fiasco to get him back on board. And, uh, you know, it was like, it was like a moment of uh, the truth crashing down on my family, you know. So we have been a family of strong swimmers ever since. And um, no. So I think it's probably safe to assume that families in Jesus' day um, also did a little bit of this posturing, kind of putting their families together and, you know, wanting to put their best face forward. Um, of course, families in Jesus' day did not send out Christmas cards as there, there wasn't photography yet. And also Christmas hadn't been invented, right? <laughs> um, but families in Jesus' day, they did something else. They kept a family tree. They kept a record of genealogy. And this was a list of people's names that did trace their family. And this was actually a case in which if they could have taken a picture and could have done the family scrapbook, um, the picture really might have saved about a thousand words, you know? <laughs> um, but what is true about this genealogy is it became really important to families of Jesus' day because it connected them to their history. It, it kind of took the place of the family album. And it showed them connections to different people in their past. It, reaffir it reaffirmed stories that big people had been telling little people for years and years. And that's where we find ourselves as we open to the Gospel of Matthew today in chapter 1. And just a sneak peek, my ancestry does not hold a candle to the type of stories that we're going to be looking into today in Matthew's genealogy. Um, the genealogy in Matthew has one big idea, and it's this. It's that Jesus came from majesty, misfits, and mess, but he came to be a king for all people everywhere. It's the whole point of what Matthew's doing here in the genealogy in chapter 1, is to trace this royal line from King David on to Jesus and to show how Jesus comes from this line of majesty. But along the way, as he does this, far from putting together a showcase Christmas card, Matthew makes it explicitly clear. He's intentional to show us that Jesus also comes from a line of misfits, people who are just a hot mess. And in spite of this, I think Matthew would argue because of it, Jesus came to be a king for all people everywhere. And with this basic idea in mind, 
I do want us to actually read through the genealogy in Matthew. Um, But before we walk through that and you listen to these names just roll off my tongue, um, a, a few observations that I think will be helpful to keep in mind as we look further at that chapter and those verses early on in in chapter 1. First of all, it's important to realize that Matthew is telling a story through this genealogy. He's mentioning certain things, and he's omitting other things on purpose. The genealogy that Matthew puts together, as, as well as the rest of his gospel, is theological. He's wanting to tell a story of God and to help readers really understand what God's up to in the world. And by the way, this approach to the genealogy would not have been unique to Matthew in his day. That was a common occurrence for a genealogy to make a point. Um, The second observation, and it kind of follows this first point, is that Matthew is not attempting a comprehensive genealogy here, trying to list every single person in the line of Christ. Uh, There's no way for Matthew to do that inside of the literary structure that he sets forward here, where Matthew is organizing these names into three different sets of 14. We'll see this as we get into that. And knowing that Matthew's not attempting this comprehensive genealogy, I think it makes us thoughtful as readers about what Matthew does include. You know, why does he make the choice to include these people? Um, What's the story he's really telling? And then The third observation is that though Matthew's genealogy is not comprehensive, it is a reliable historical account. Okay, so the names we're going to read, they really are real people who really did live these lives and in this order. Okay, when Matthew says father, the early readers would have understood he, he might mean to say grandpa or ancestor just as well. He's tracing the bloodline generally. So these people are the people who begat those people who begat those people. That's kind of the basic idea. Um, And I mentioned that Matthew organizes these names in three sets of 14. This is the final point. Um, That's explicitly mentioned in verse 17. Um, And for those of you who tend to be nerdy and precise, as do I, (laughs) um, I might encourage that we all just kind of chill out a little bit. Um, Because these three sets of 14 get a little bit tricky. Some of the names are mentioned twice. Um, and I, in the final set, I was having trouble finding 14 names unless you count a name twice. I was told after first service that I'm just not reading the text <laughs> as well as I should be, so uh, we'll suspend that. That may or may not be true. But the point is it's a little bit messy um, as it relates to these sets of 14. And I think it helps us to keep in mind that Matthew wants to establish a reliable and a memorable genealogy, okay? So probably not everyone had parchment, extra parchment laying around to write down all the names. Um, Can you imagine memorizing these names, by the way? Um, When we read them, I think you will say, no, I cannot imagine memorizing all of those names. Uh, But Matthew, he wanted to provide this reliable and memorable account, and, and he wanted to trace the royal lineage, you know? So King David is a big deal, and since Hebrew names could hold numeric value, Based on their consonants, any Hebrew name could also have a a numeric value. And David's name is equal to 14. So many scholars believe that that may be behind Matthew's approach here. Bottom line, we're not sure um, about all these little details, but it's very clear the intentionality of Matthew as he puts this genealogy together. Um, So now with a little of that seminary trivia tucked in your back pocket, please stand with me and let's read um, Matthew beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. It's page 807 if you're reading from a pew Bible. 
The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first, Jesus is king. Jesus comes from a line of majesty. Matthew wastes no time in establishing this fact. The minute he introduces Jesus in chapter 1, he references a kingly title for Jesus, son of David. This title had become synonymous with king. The promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And after this explicit promise that's made in Samuel there, uh, 2 Samuel, God continues to affirm, affirm that time, time and again in Scripture. He continues to name this promise that he's made. And beyond lip service, he intervenes into human history, raising up these kings from the bloodline of David. So you'll remember Solomon was first, and then his son Rehoboam, and it goes on from there, as you can see in verses 7 through 11 in the genealogy. The point was this, that God had committed himself to establishing a righteous kingdom and placing on its throne an unshakable king. But by the time that Joseph and Mary enter the scene, this promise, this promise that God had made was hanging out to dry. The throne of David had been vacant for a long time. And you know, we think about a long time, but I'm talking about a long time centuries long. Um, did you notice the reference in the genealogy to the exile into Babylon, verse 11? That's part of the story Matthew's remembering here. God's people had been taken captive, conquered by another nation, 
As we look at the genealogy, there does seem to be one hopeful spot when Zerubbabel's name is mentioned there in verse 14. He was someone who'd returned to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the second temple. And yet even after that little bright spot, there was still no movement, no established kingdom, no, no intervention of God to set forward a king. Over 400 years would pass and nothing had God walked away from his covenant promises? That's the question that's hanging in the air as Joseph and Mary come together, even as Matthew's pinning the genealogy. Is God still bringing a king for all people? And in light of this backdrop, there's no mistaking what Matthew's message is here. The primary claim he's making is that the long and desperate wait is over. The divine king has finally come. Jesus, the Messiah, Son of David. He is the fulfillment. He's the one who's making good on God's long-standing promises. A few verses later, Matthew will explain the virgin birth, and along with it, he'll make it clear that Jesus comes from a divine king on his mother's side, Mary the virgin, whose miraculous child is from God. But here, Matthew's making clear that royal line of Jesus on the father's side, on Joseph's side, Mother, father, the royal line, make it clear that this baby Jesus is king, full on. He comes from a a line of majesty, and he's destined to be the king for all people. Now, if I was Matthew getting my Christmas card together, I feel like this is a pretty good place to stop. You know, let's put it in the envelope, put it in the mail. But Matthew refuses to stop there. In the same way that Matthew is painstaking about tracing the royal line, now as we get into the names that Matthew provides, he seems just as intent on bringing out all the messy skeletons in the closet of Jesus' family and ancestry. I mean, it's almost painful. Actually, as I was studying these names this week and the backstories, there are moments where I just felt like this is cringeworthy. You know, in the same way that Matthew's making clear this majestic line, he's also making clear Jesus' family is a mess. He comes from a line of misfits. You guys, it would be hard to find a more sordid group than we see here in Matthew 1. Prostitute, check. Murderer, check. Incestuous father-in-law slash creep, check. Rebels, losers, sinners, nobodies. Literally, people we know nothing about. Listed here in the genealogy by Matthew Matthew, in this royal line of Jesus. There's so much intentionality in the names that he chooses to include. It would have been obvious to everyone. Matthew's not just focusing on the royal bloodline, although King David is the centerpiece of it all. He's also making clear that Jesus comes from misfits and mess. These are his people. I mean, opening to these verses in Matthew 1 is kind of like flipping on Judge Judy or one of these other daytime talk shows, right? This is Game of Thrones, except for when we flip on these shows, we're just spectators. You know, we're being entertained. For Jesus, this is his family. This is his people. It's hard to overstate this. Um, Actually, it'd be difficult to think up a genealogy that's more outrageous there are definitely a few renowned saints and some patriarchs on the, on the list, which is kind of part of the scandal. But by and large, the majority of these folks are just a little bit crazy. Um, and this is the sort of thing that would make Uncle Eddie blush. You know, like Clark Griswold's kin, Uncle Eddie. He would be blushing by the genealogy of Matthew. 
Um, but I don't want you to take my word for it. I want to take a little bit of time to dive into some of the nitty-gritty on these names and slow down, just park with them for a little while so you can get a firsthand look at some of what Matthew's doing here. I want to start with the bottom of the genealogy beginning in, first, in verse 13 and following. As I mentioned already, there are a number of folks here that we don't know that much about, and it's especially true of this last set. Um, but we do know a little bit about the history that they lived through. These guys are the people who lived through those 400 years of silence, that period in which there's just not a lot of evidence of God's work or intervention in history. There's no scriptures that are pinned during this time. And it really did seem like God may be checked out. You know, maybe those promises are no longer good. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you really screwed up, you transgressed against someone in your life, or there's some... Um, some broken promise that really needs restitution. And I don't know if you know that feeling where you just want it to get made right. You know, you just, you just want it, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll do whatever. You just want it to get made right. And as I was thinking about this period of time, there really is a, a theme of that that kind of lingers in the air. I mean, God's people have broken his promises time and time again. And there is no sense that God has any obligation to, to uphold his part of the deal and this is the context where these men, these wives and kids, lived and died. And just like all of them, before, all the ones before them, all the ones after them, they still lived full lives, right? I mean, they learned to walk and talk and ride their sick donkeys. <laughs> um, they fell in love. They got married. They had kids and jobs and hardships. They got sick and they cared for aging parents and they died eventually. Those same kinds of joys and hardships and scandals that made earlier generations famous were still unfolding during these silent years. And yet every one of the men listed here, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, and moving on, they lived with no awareness that God was using their very lives to set the stage for a, for a king. They lived quiet lives and died forgotten deaths with no one remembering, seemingly, no one watching, except the providential eye of a coming king who was actually going to use their forgotten lives to accomplish his purposes. Even in this deafening silence, God was about all people. We mentioned Zerubbabel, this one listed, who was kind of the bright spot. And it's true that after more than 50 years in exile, it was he, alongside of a priest called Joshua, who led thousands of Jews back to Jerusalem to lay the foundation for a second temple. I want us now to hop back up to the start of the genealogy and just kind of begin working through some names there. Uh, beginning in verse 2, it's not surprising that we see the, the big three, right? The trifecta of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because we've spent some time already with Abraham, and also because these patriarchs are better known, I don't want to spend a long time on these guys, but just one observation before we leave them behind. Have you ever thought about the fact that all three of these men fathered children that would be in this genealogy who were not supposed to be there? It's true. Every single one of their children who would go on to propagate the line of Jesus was a physiological impossibility. These men were not physically able, we know from the scriptures, they were not physically able to impregnate their wives, except that they did. <laughs> and so they're listed here. 
And because of that, so is Jesus. These miracle children begetting miracle children. It's really fascinating. And so we make it to Judah. And you, remember, you may remember that he was one of the 12 tribes, right? The 12 sons of Jacob. And Genesis tells us, and it's confirmed again here in Matthew, that Judah's, uh, the, the line of Judah is the royal line. And knowing that makes uh, the mention of the next three names, Perez, Zerah, and Tamar, shocking. These three are not the stuff of royalty, okay? Perez and Zerah are twins born to Judah and Tamar. Tamar is the kind of person whose name is synonymous with scandal. Think Monica Lewinsky, right? She's a Canaanite woman, uh, probably not very popular, but she was decidedly notorious. Tamar was the wife of one of Judah's sons. Okay, I want to slow down. Tamar was the wife of one of Judah's sons. <laughs> but after her husband passed away, she found herself desperate when that same family refused to care for her. So Jewish tradition in that day was that the family was responsible to care for widows by arranging marriage with an eligible son. But Tamar's family, Judah and his sons, refused to care for her. They treated her like trash. Destitute, out of options, Tamar decides to disguise herself as a prostitute and wait for her father-in-law, Judah, to take the bait. Again, reminder that Judah was already married with three sons. But sure enough, Judah took the bait. And after Judah slept with Tamar, she became pregnant with his child. When he heard this, Judah decided to kill them both. And it was only through remarkable cunning, and now we probably know through the providence of God, right? You can read more about this in Genesis 38. Tamar and her twins did live to face another day and to be listed in the genealogy. Tamar is the first of four women mentioned in the genealogy. And that brings us to the last few names I want to focus on this morning. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And you may have noticed Bathsheba is referenced in verse 6, but she's not called by her name. There's reference instead in an indirect way to her sin. The fact that Matthew includes four women in the genealogy is remarkable. Genealogies of this day may have had one or two women listed, and they most certainly would have been respected matriarch figures, people like Rebecca or Sarah. Um, so three observations about the women that Matthew includes in the genealogy. First of all, three of the four women were associated with scandalous sexual sin, right? We discussed already the shame of Tamar, and there was also Rahab, the prostitute, and Bathsheba, who committed adultery with King David. Even the fourth woman, Ruth, came from the Moabite people whose origins were incestuous, and because of this, God had banned them from assembly of the Lord to the 10th generation, and knowing this history, I, mean, I just couldn't help but think this past week about Jesus kneeling down, kneeling down eye to eye with that woman caught in adultery, right? Think about how his background may have shaped, at least informed a bit of his response. The second observation about these four women is that they were Gentiles. Um, well, I should say three of the four of them were Gentiles. But Bathsheba, who was apparently an Israelite, may very well have been regarded as a Gentile because of her marriage to Uriah, this Hittite. Undoubtedly, when Matthew decides to include these Gentiles in the, the genealogy in Matthew, he is recounting again this important and constant refrain of God's promise to bless all the peoples of the world through Abraham. And then the last observation with these three women, um, three of the four 
Ruth, Tamar, and Rahab were refugees, were aliens, displaced from their home. And we just see, again, the echo of the, New, of the Old Testament, where God was so clear about his heart for the widow, the orphan, and the alien, or those who are, are refugees. And we also see a bit of foreshadowing as Joseph and Mary would flee for their lives, along with Jesus, escaping to Egypt. Um, and later in chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus utters the words that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So these are the people he comes from. And of course, more stories could be told. Um, and indeed, as we continue on with Matthew, we'll have the chance to keep tracing this theme, even through the birth story of Jesus. But even with these few snapshots that we've looked at, I think we have a different vantage point to think about Jesus as king and to listen again in fresh ways to the words of Isaiah the prophet when he writes, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus comes from a long line of majesty, misfits, and mess, but he's the king, the Messiah for all people everywhere. So what does this mean for us today? Situated inside of our own circumstances and families here in Brookside on a on a sunny morning in 2015. Well, one thing it means, I think, is that we have to wrestle with this claim that Jesus came from all people to be a king for all people, a king who has dominion over everyone and everything. In just a few little Greek words at the start of his gospel, Matthew throws down the gauntlet, Jesus Christ, the son of David, Jesus Christ, king. And then Matthew spends 16 verses spelling that out. Make no mistake, Matthew wants this claim staring us in the face today. He wants us asking questions about what kind of a king would come in this way. What kind of a kingdom would he build? Matthew isn't throwing out this genealogy so we can like do Bible trivia, you know, the baby shower quiz. No, Matthew is inviting us to consider again this fundamental question does this Jesus of Nazareth have the right to be my king? Will I place my trust in him? Not once upon a time or maybe someday, but today. Will I believe that he is who he said he is and that he's moving history to accomplish his purposes? And can I trust? Can I trust that his plan for the world is the best plan for me? Simply put, will I let Jesus be my king? And I want to take just a few minutes this morning to wrestle with that question. You know, I, I was thinking it may be helpful to consider three specific reasons why I think Matthew encourages us to say, yes, yes, make Jesus your king. Why wouldn't he be your king? So just going to walk through three considerations on that. First of all, this king understands our mess. This king is not a distant king. He knows. He understands. He's been there. Um, you know, in my job working with our partners, I spend a fair bit of time thinking about poverty alleviation. And that's a complicated issue and requires really multifaceted, complicated solutions. I mean, we could spend, we could spend decades thinking through, and people have, thinking through um, the, the challenge of poverty alleviation. 
but it's not hard to tell you what doesn't work. Everybody in the field is absolutely agreed on what doesn't work, and it's simple. What does not work is trying to solve poverty from the outside. Trying to offer drive-by solutions or outside interventions that aren't connected to the context, that aren't present, whether it be a single individual or family or a neighborhood, a whole region, to attempt to care for these people from the outside with these drop-down solutions, they hurt, they further damage. I mean, we hosted a conference this fall. It was all about that, you know? Books are written, you know, when helping hurts. And for me, this is one of the most amazing and hopeful things about King Jesus. He never tried to fix us from the outside, you know, firing off solutions or advice. And sadly, I think there's a misconception that the salvation of Christianity is following a bunch of rules, and it's just not the truth. From the start, God has been a king who enters into the world, reaching down into his creation, even before Jesus, drawing near. Nowhere, though, do we see this more clearly than in the incarnation, with Jesus stepping into time and space, into a bloodline, into a family tree, Jesus knows what it's like to be a real person with brokenness, with pain, with identity, identity issues, with heartache and family shame. No other so-called God can say that. And even though Jesus was without sin, he knows what it's like to have a past. And everybody here today, we have some skeletons in our closet. We have some ugly stuff that we don't want on that Christmas card, right? And also, collectively, as a society, as a, as a community, there's just some ugly parts. Things that continue to hurt us or keep us hurting others. But if God can use those things to bring about his son, what can't he use in your life and mine? Why not let him be the king of our mess? I think the second consideration is that this king really is for all. And I mean this in two ways. First of all, this king is not afraid of all people. He's not distant. He's not arm's length. He's not um, too good or too proud or too shamed. He's a king who reaches out to all people, every culture, every class, every gender, every age and style. If you're married, if you're single, if you're one with a happy disposition, if you're grouchy all the time, this is the king who wants you. If Matthew's genealogy teaches us anything, it's that no one is left out. King Jesus wants them all. And then the second part of that, that the king really is for all, is that this king can work with anything. At the end of the day, his power, his grace, his salvation is unmatched. And Anthony touched on this a little bit last week. You know, Jesus' promise of salvation is not just personal or, or spiritual. It is personal and it is spiritual. But it's broader than that. His salvation is hope that God is actually restoring this whole world, making everything bad and sad come untrue. This king is making all of the broken places whole, all of the ugly things he's making beautiful, all of the hungry places this king is making full. And again, not in a figurative or a theoretical sense. No, this king who is flesh and blood is working this out in families, in people, in places, in systems. 
in real human history, this is the mission of God. This is the hope we have for all people. This is King Jesus. Don't you want to join him? Don't you want him as your king? Third consideration is that this king really is Messiah. Uh, Just a few verses after the genealogy in Matthew, we find this simple statement. Uh, This is in verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I was struck, reflecting on this verse this past week, I was struck by the pronouns in that verse. Have you ever noticed them before? He will save his people from their sins. Isn't that fascinating? These are his people. He's one of them. He's in their corner. He's on their team. But those are their sins. This king, he's without sin. He always does what's best. You know, I wonder, have you ever played on a team, whether a sports team or a, a, maybe at your office, a company or corporate team, where you got to be around somebody like that who on one hand was, was so amazingly gifted, so good, um, and yet at the same time was always pulling you up and inviting your best self to come out? Um, I think the answer is no. I mean, you know, you, you've not played on a team with somebody like this. It's so hard to hold these two things together. It's the paradox of who Jesus is. And yet, Jesus, he's got everything. The riches of heaven, all power, all knowledge, all perfection. And yet, he came near to be a king amongst all people, to be a king for people, drawing you up into his mission This king did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, this king humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He invites us to come and join in that chorus today. King Jesus, the son of David, son of Abraham, invites us to come. And we really do have a tangible opportunity today as we transition into the ending part of our service Something we do every week here at Brookside is to practice communion, to come together to the Lord's table. And I I just want this invitation from the king to linger with us, you know? I want to take just a few minutes to let you kind of check in with yourself on where you're at with this. Um, You know, maybe you placed your, your trust in this king long ago, and you've been walking with him. And my question for you today is, how is this king asking you to trust his reign today? Is there some way in which he's just probing, picking at your heart, picking at your mind, kind of pressing you to a deeper faith in who he is as the king? Uh, Or maybe you're here today and you've never ventured to trust this king. You've never felt like, maybe you didn't feel like he was trustworthy. Maybe you didn't think he would understand Um, really be able to know what you're dealing with? Or maybe you've had concerns if he'd be capable of dealing with your mess, right? Um, Maybe you never really thought about Jesus as a real person 
who entered into history and time and place and yet was God and was about the purposes of God in this world. So wherever you are, I just want to invite you to draw near to this king and ask him, how might he be inviting um, you to trust his reign in your life today?